0: Please stand with me for the the reading of God's word. Our scripture today comes from Matthew 12, verses 22 through 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub." By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. Whoever is not with me is against me, And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Since I've been at OGC, I have had the unique privilege of preaching on <laughs> things like uh, judgment for every careless word we speak. If you remember last time, then it was adultery. And just in case you thought I was going to let up, this morning is on the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And since I'm probably not the only one who can see a pattern here, I'll just go ahead and preemptively send out. All the other dates when I preach on other un- uncontroversial subjects like eternal judgment, predestination, gender and sexuality, whatever. Um, jokes aside, I really am thankful to be at a church that uh, puts a great importance on preaching through the word of God because this ultimately, it helps us to make sure that we are uh, hearing from who God says he is and not making a God of our own mind. Um, and that inevitably means that we're going to run into texts sometimes that we wouldn't have otherwise chosen for ourselves, like the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Um, so, by way of, of helping us this morning, we have three major questions that we're going to be asking and getting answers to. And they are what is the heart posture that leads to the unpardonable sin? Second, what, how does Jesus address that heart posture? And thirdly, what makes the unpardonable sin unpardonable? So diving right into the text, what we see here is that we see Jesus who is brought someone, a group of people bring this uh, demon oppressed, blind and mute man to Jesus, and Jesus heals him such that he can again see and then speak. And then it says the crowds are amazed. Now, right off the bat here, we as modern people might read this text and we might inwardly kind of roll our eyes because we think that we might be too sophisticated, so to speak, uh, to believe in personal, evil, supernatural forces like demons in the modern world, um, and we might proverbially then pat the people in Jesus' day on the head. And then by extension, we also kind of pat Jesus on the head because we think we've outgrown childish, silly notions such as demons. I mean, we can't believe in such things like that. We we know that they believed in those things because they didn't know any better, right? But we certainly don't believe in those things because we, we, we know other things that they didn't know at that time. So... That's typically the attitude that we as modern people can have. So if that's you this morning and you're tempted to either kind of explain away this part of the text or if you are tempted to uh, to put the, the Bible because of this on the level of fairy tale, I'd like to gently invite you to consider that you may have fallen into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. And what he means by that, what he meant by that was that We as modern people tend to look down on other historical periods of time and what they believed in their historical period of time simply because we live in this historical period of time. And so when we do that, we actually uh, are thinking that our uh, worldview and our historical period of time is far superior than anything that came before us. And if you don't believe me, just think about the last time that you said oh, come on, nobody believes that anymore. It's 2022 or 2021. Maybe not have gotten used to 2022 yet. But So if you find yourself saying that, that means that you're subtly insinuating or implying that our worldview in this particular historical period of time is far superior than anything that came before us, and we typically, when we believe this way, are failing to recognize that we hold often strange and contradictory beliefs in our historical period of time. And like C.S. Lewis says, the, these beliefs that we are not aware of, they lurk in those widespread assumptions that are so ingrained in our society that we feel uh, we, we dare not attack them, nor do we feel it necessary to defend them. And I bring all this up because we, like the people in this text this morning, we bring a, we bring a posture. We bring a, a certain disposition, a certain set of beliefs to who we think Jesus is. And in this specific text this morning, we see two such postures. And those postures are characterized by either curiosity or they're characterized by contempt. So for instance, at in verse 23 we see that the, the people, that all the people, when they saw Jesus uh, heal this this demon-oppressed, blind and mute man, we see that they are astonished. And they they begin to ask themselves, can this be the, the son of David? And when they're asking that, they are demonstrating to us a, a certain heart posture. a They're demonstrating to us a heart posture of curiosity. In other words, though Jesus... Right in front of them may not have exactly lined up with what they might not have they might have expected from the Messiah, which is what Son of David means. Even though that doesn't exactly line up with what they might have expected, still they were curious enough to ask questions and to investigate whether what they thought they knew was actually the case. But theirs isn't the only posture we see here in this text. There's also the posture of the Pharisees, and theirs. Instead, is a posture of contempt. And here in this particular context, contempt can be defined as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration or as the disregard for something that should be taken into account. So these Pharisees, they have a heart posture of contempt, and they have this heart posture that they are so rooted in that they are suspicious of and they're antagonistic against anything that might even seem different than what they might expect or what they think they know. In other words, they are bought into their narrative, so much so that they, even if they had, had all the facts in the world to the contrary, they wouldn't consider them. And so what they do is they, they, hold, a, a, they hold a press release or a, or, or a smear campaign, as it were, and they say that this man, he, he's not casting out demons. He, he cast, he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So essentially they were calling him Satan. And in this way, they were showing that they had a, a heart posture of contempt. After all, they had to say something, by the way, because they were seeing that all the crowds were curious about who Jesus was. So I think something that we can ask ourselves this morning is, what is our heart posture towards Jesus? Do we have a heart posture that is curious to hear who Jesus says that he is? Or are we subtly nourishing and nurturing a heart posture of contempt in our heart that either wants to ignore or even suppress who Jesus says he is because we prefer, in all reality, our own narrative. Because if we have the second heart posture, that answers our first question this morning. What is the heart posture that leads to the unpardonable sin? And it is the second heart posture. It's this heart posture of contempt. Now, as uncomfortable as it is to continue thinking about whether we have that heart posture or not, I would like to actually invite us to linger a little bit longer and consider who it is in specific that Jesus is addressing in this text. Because we would typically think that Jesus is talking to a skeptical person or a non-religious person in this text. And that and that this person is the person who has the heart, heart posture of contempt towards Jesus. But if you look at this, this is not who Jesus is addressing. It's not who the, the people, the group of people in this text who has that heart posture. Instead, what we see here is this heart posture of contempt comes from the most religious people. It comes from the people who know their Bible inside and out and who are so convinced of what they think they know and so convinced of their expectations of the Messiah that they won't even consider who Jesus is and they won't even take him into account. Instead, they smear him, they, they malign him, they slander him. So, of course, you can have a heart posture of contempt if, say, you doubt whether or not Jesus was uh, raised from the dead or if you think that the Bible was corrupted by men throughout the centuries, but you can also have a heart posture of contempt if instead of trusting in who Jesus says he is, you actually are trusting in your own knowledge and understanding, your own religious knowledge and understanding, and your own religious performance, and your own religious position. In this way, you can also have this heart posture. And that brings us to the second question that we have this morning. How does Jesus then address this heart posture? Well, if you think about it, think for a second with me, how you would respond and want to address the heart of someone who maligned you and demonized you in public. For instance, we as Christians today, we can often Though we aren't actually called Satan outright, uh, we can be demonized, so to speak, because when um, we can be called, we can be given the title uh, bigot or intolerant. I don't know if you've experienced this. But even so, unlike Jesus, there are sometimes that we actually deserve that, that title. And that because of things that we have done or things that we have said or ways that we have come off the people. And even when we deserve it, even though, even when we have earned that title for ourselves and, and on occasion in particular situations, we still bristle. We still get a defensive, and we might even go on the attack, sadly. Now, keep that in mind as we look at how Jesus responds here to being demonized. Because he doesn't bristle, he doesn't bow up, he doesn't go on the attack. Instead, he calmly Lays out the facts. He points out the facts to the Pharisees. And then he does something very interesting. He questions the basis of their suspicious, their suspicion and their contempt. So he says, a house divided against itself will not stand. He's saying this is self-evident. A house divided against itself, itself will not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, if you think about it, this is actually almost more amazing than than him casting out a demon, because these Pharisees, these religious leaders, just look God the Son incarnate in the eye, the very person who upholds the, the universe by the word of his power, and they called him Satan to his face. I mean, Jesus could have said, how dare you? Do you have any idea who you're talking to? And he could have snapped his fingers like Thanos and they would have disintegrated into subatomic particles. And he would have every right to do that because he's God in the the flesh. But that's not what he did. Instead, he responded with humility, with gentleness. And he did what Paul uh, instructed Timothy Timothy to do in his second letter. He, He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach... Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So Jesus patiently endures evil, and he corrects his opponents with gentleness by inviting the Pharisees to reflect on the self-evident fact that their narrative just doesn't work. And he, so he patiently points out uh, this fact by asking them other questions. He says, and if, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. And the sense here is it's as if he's saying let's just assume for a second that you're right. Let's assume that I'm actually casting out demons by the power of Satan. Okay? Let's assume that's that's the truth for just a second. If that's the case, then what what about you guys? <laughs> what about the people who are casting out demons that have been brought up under your teaching? And that's Commentators, uh, they note that that's what he means when he says sons here, that your sons will be your judges. These are the people who would have been uh, the Pharisees' disciples who were coming up under the Pharisees' teaching, and they were out uh, casting out demons. So he's saying, he's, basically what he's doing is he's, applying, he's, at, he's inviting the Pharisees to apply the same measure of, of judgment that they are to him through their own ministry. And if you think about it, this is also crazy. This is astounding. This is amazing because he had every right to judge them, every right to even condemn them right there on the spot, but he chooses not to. And instead, he takes a step back and he invites them to consider uh, the same judgment to apply to the, their own tribe, their own group of people. He's, he lays aside his rights and he is gentle, he's humble. It's worth noting here, uh, finally, since Jesus has already taken the teeth out of their narrative, what does he do? He provides the only other possibility that's left. He says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he gives proof for that. And he says, or how how else can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first uh, binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And this is really fitting here in the context because Jesus is showing us that the very fact that he has gone and uh, cast out this demon and saved this man from demon oppression is showing that he is the person who Isaiah prophesies and who Matthew quotes in the preceding verses. You'll notice that he says, Behold, my, ser- my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well-pleased, I will put my spirit on him. If you remember, Luke says something similar in his gospel. He says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is patiently reasoning with the Pharisees and showing them that he is this servant of the Lord. On whom the Spirit of the Lord is, who was was to come and he was the, the son of the the seed of the woman who has come to crush the head of the serpent. He was the Redeemer who had come to set all things back to the way that they were supposed to be. He was the person who the Redeemer who was to come and and bind up the strong man and rescue people from his oppressive grip. So in this way, Jesus is proclaiming his identity to the Pharisees. He's proclaiming his identity to the crowds not by coming in and exercising temporal power over governments or by crushing nations under his feet like the like the Pharisees might have expected. Instead, he's coming and he's showing us his identity like the like the prophets prophesied by recovering the sight of the blind and by setting at liberty those who are oppressed. And then after he shows us what that, uh, who he is, what his identity is, he shows us what that means for us. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not ga- gather with me scatters. This is the proverbial line in the sand if there ever was one. Either you're with Jesus and what he's about or you're against him. There's no neutrality here. There's no middle ground. Struggling our shoulders concerning Jesus' per- person and work is tantamount to siding with the enemy. Furthermore, abdicating our role and co-laboring with him and gathering with him is basically showing ourselves complicit with the cause of evil. So this is as black and white as it comes, right? Either you're in or you're out. But here's the rub. We all have idolatrous, sinful hearts. And what that means is that we all have our own idea of what brings us peace and security and well-being. In other words, we go about setting up our own kingdom, so to speak. And we go about putting ourselves on the throne of that kingdom as kings and queens so that we can get our own peace, our own security, and our own well-being on our own terms. And because we're human, like the the Pharisees, we can so easily convince ourselves that our kingdom and that God's kingdom are essentially the same thing. We can so easily convince ourselves that our values and that God's values are pretty much synonymous. And We do this because, as Paul says, we exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship and we serve the creation rather than the creature, rather than the creator. So what that means is our tendency as humans is to take a good thing in life, whatever it may be, and to make it an ultimate thing. We all do this. We all take good things and make them ultimate things, and we put them, and we give them ultimate value such that when God's own kingdom shows up, and when when something that God calls good shows up, we can even be deceived into thinking that at its very core, that thing that threatens our idea of our kingdom is at its very core demonic. We can be so adverse to it because of how we can convince ourselves in in this way. And that's what Jim was uh, talking about last week that the, the Pharisees were doing here. They were they were desperately trying to secure peace for Israel. They were trying to uh, make sure that they didn't go at all costs, go back into exile. So what they did was they, they set up other rules and, and extra steps to do on top, on top of what God had said. So they created uh, measurable steps with controllable outcomes so that they can make absolutely sure that they would secure for themselves their own idea of peace and security and well-being on their own terms. And when they did that, when God's kingdom actually showed up, when what he valued most actually showed up, it was a threat to them. And it threatened their false security and their false identity and their false sense of peace and well-being such that they demonized it. So another question for us this morning is, in what ways are we exchanging God's truth for a lie? In what way are we convincing ourselves that our kingdom is essentially the same thing as God's kingdom and our values are essentially the same thing as God's values, such that when what God values actually shows up in our lives, that we treat it as a threat. We hold it in contempt. We demonize it in favor of what of our own disordered values, of of our own false sense of security. Because as we'll see in these final two verses, this is what Jesus is getting at when he says these things to the Pharisees. He says, Therefore I tell you, in verse 31 and 32, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, if you're here this morning and you're wondering, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> you're actually in good company, and that's actually the last question that we're asking ourselves this morning, is what makes the unpardonable sin unpardonable? So if you're here and you're, and you're confused by this, that totally makes sense, and it, it, in fact, it makes sense that we would also be scared in our own hearts of whether or not we've actually committed this unpardonable sin. We probably all have either felt that or are feeling that right now, and that makes sense. So if that's you this morning, I would actually like to invite us to consider something that... uh, Kathy Keller said in an Advent devotional over Christmas time that Gospel in Life puts out. She said that when we come across verses that are confusing or even sometimes offensive, when we come across uh, verses, in other words, like this, that are kind of confusing, what we should do is we should slow down before we freak out. And what she means by that is we should slow down and, and assume a posture as best as we can, of curiosity and say, could this text be saying something, could this passage be saying something that is somewhat confusing or would have been more clear to the people in the time that it was written, for the people to whom it was written, and that the people uh, who would be reading it originally than it is to me in 2022. Because when we ask ourselves that question, things can get clearer. For instance, when, uh, when many commentators throughout history would agree that when Jesus uses this term, son of man, when he says, blasphemy against the son of man, every blasphemy against the son of man will be forgiven, he's, he's using a very specific uh, title for himself. And it's a, it's a regal, it's a kingly title. And he's getting that from Daniel's prophecy, In Daniel, in his prophecy in chapter 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." So when you hear the words about the Son of Man, this person, you think, this does not sound like somebody I want to be blaspheming. This does not sound like somebody I want to be speaking against. This sounds like somebody I would want to hold in the highest esteem. sounds like somebody whose word I want to take seriously. But where do we encounter this title again, And, and especially these verses quoted later in the New Testament? Well, we encounter them from the mouth of the one about whom they are written. We, we encounter them from the very Son of Man, Jesus Christ, when he is awaiting his trial, or he's on trial and awaiting his crucifixion. And Mark records this in his gospel like this. He says, again, the high priest asked them, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when he said those words, when he proclaimed that he was the son of man, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they ripped their robes in rage and they began to spit on him and malign him and mock him and beat him. It says they carried away, carried him away with blows. So what this first part is showing us, What when Jesus says, every word that is spoken against and every blasphemy against the Son of Man, when he says this, what he's showing us is the wonder of the cross. He's showing us that there's absolutely nothing that we can do, nothing that we can say against Jesus that he will not forgive. He's showing us that even if we malign him and blaspheme him and and, uh, kick dirt on him and spit on him, if we, when we come to our senses, when we recognize who we have in front of us and and against whom we have offended, then if we can say, "Man, I, I should not have done that," when we humbly recognize that and repent, and we come to Him and ask for forgiveness, He will say, "I forgive you. I love you." This is the wonder of the cross, and. After all, this is the very purpose of the cross. This is the whole point of the cross. Because even while we were actively opposing Jesus, actively living out, doing and saying things against the Son of Man, he came down to take on himself the just punishment that we deserve on the cross. This is the cross. This is the wonder of the cross. And this is how Peter describes it. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the this is the gospel. This is the wonder of the cross. Because a sinless savior died my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This is the gospel. So this, is, this explains the first part that Jesus is saying. This explains when he says, every sin and blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But what about the second part? What about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? That's probably what we kind of want to know a little bit more about because that's unpardonable. <laughs> And we go back to the context here, like Kathy Keller said. In the immediate context, we may have noted that we have noted that the Pharisees are objecting to a, an apparent good that they know is done by the Spirit of God through Jesus to a demon-oppressed, blind and mute man. So what they're doing is they are actively willfully suppressing the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, to reveal to them who Jesus is. They are actively pushing away and saying, I don't want to know. So to sum up this posture, this heart posture, I think it's typically safe to uh, quote John Calvin and Augustine. So John Calvin puts it like this. He says, this, uh, this heart posture or this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a persistent stubbornness, even to death, with a distrust of pardon." Likewise, Augustine says it this way, and then it's an, it's an impenitent heart against the gratuitous gift of the grace of God. And just to make it a little bit clearer, Erickson actually pointed something out to me this week, because Jesus here, he does physically for this demon-oppressed blind mute man what he is wanting to do spiritually for the Pharisees. And if you note... This blind, mute man that was demon-impressed was actually brought to Jesus. And it doesn't say by whom, but I'm assuming by people. He's brought to Jesus. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is the person whose role it is to bring us to Jesus, to draw us to him, to convince us of, him, of our need for him. He is the one who gives us even spiritual sight so that we can look at Jesus and count him worthy of, and not hold him in contempt, but count him worthy of our affections, of our trust. And if you remember how Jesus approached the Pharisees, he did so in a kind and gentle way. And the rest of what Paul instructs Timothy is to do it in a kind and gentle way. Because he says that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Because they are, he knows, Jesus knows that they are captured by him to do his will. it sound familiar? It sounds just like this, this demon oppressed man captured, ensnared until Jesus comes along. So what he's doing spiritually is he's wanting to, he's he's trying to, he wants to take on the strong man that has ensnared uh, the Pharisees spiritually, and he wants to set them free. But what do we see them doing? We see them doubling down. And so Jesus is saying, if you speak against me, you can still be forgiven. But if you resist even being brought to me in the first place, if you resist the drawing of the Holy Spirit and the convincing power of the Holy Spirit to show you your need for Jesus, if you choose to to double down and to dig your heels in, then this is, what you're saying is, I'd rather die trying to save myself and to accept your charity and that's the unpardonable sin because you're stubbornly self-selecting out you know all of the facts you know who jesus is that he's right in front of you and you are stubbornly select self-selecting out of the only pardon that is handed that is held out for you to accept you're saying i don't want that you're essentially you're putting yourself outside of the scope outside of the grasp of forgiveness, because that's what you want. This is the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that when we continue with that way of being, that heart posture, until we draw our last breath, there is no forgiveness, neither now nor in eternity. So the question is, what do we do with this? Well, I think the first and obvious thing, first and obvious thing is, is if you're here this morning and you are experiencing a, a callous or a stubborn heart against Jesus, I would actually like to invite you to uh, do what, what C.S. Lewis says, and doubt your own suspicion against him. Doubt your own contempt of Jesus. Consider him. Lewis says that suspicion often creates what it suspects. Think about that. It, it, it often creates what it suspects. It projects what it is suspicious of. So I would say, doubt your own suspicion, and come to Jesus. And so, if you're that's you this morning, or you're doubting that Jesus can even that you're too far for gra- too, too far gone for grace, then do as the hymn says. Let not conscience let you linger, linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. Secondly, there are those, sadly, here this morning probably, who when we read these verses, we are plagued by a crippling fear that we may have sometime in our life committed this unpardonable sin. And even after hearing what it is, we still are just deathly afraid that either we have or we're going to commit this unpardonable sin. So if that's you this morning, I just want you to feel comfort and know that you are not alone neither now nor in history. And I'd also like to invite you to come and talk to one of the pastors or some, someone here this morning if, if you are struggling with that, that gripping, crippling fear. And I also want to commend you to a, a book to you by a man named Alex Ryrie. And it's called Unbelief, An Emotional History of Doubt. And he chronicles Hundreds of experiences of saints throughout history who dealt with this very fear of whether or not they, are, uh, they have committed this unpardonable sin. And lastly, I can't help but mention these last words in light of the division, in light of the division in our world and in our church this morning. The, these words of, this, of a commentator uh, about this particular text. He, that he says, Jesus' warning against blaspheming the Holy Spirit should make believers extremely cautious about attributing the actions of other professing Christians to the devil. To be sure, we must test the spirits, including those in our own midst, and recognize that Jesus—that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light, but unambiguous evidence of diabolical empowerment must be present before we level such charges. Evidence such as flagrant doctrinal or moral perversion and unusual hostility to Jesus' name and the redemptive mission of his followers. Apart from very serious signs such as these, one should tread most cautiously when speaking of Satan's direct influence in, in Christian circles. I know that's long, but I think it's just so worth mentioning in light of the fact that, honestly, it's no secret that the past two years in churches across this country have just, it's been very difficult because churches have been fractured. The people of God has been fractured across the country. There's been an unusual quickness to look at fellow gospel-believing, Bible-preaching uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and say that they are the greatest threat, so to speak, to the gospel in our lifetime. And that has made us a house divided. So as a result, I'd like to call us to a challenge. Instead of having a posture of contempt and that demonizes fellow believers, What if we had a posture of curiosity? What if instead of jumping to conclusions, we were quick to listen and to assume positive intent? Or we can do like Rebecca McLaughlin said this past year, and we can, she said, if we evangelize more, then we would fight each other less. So if we stop, I just pray that we can stop fighting each other and gather with our Lord and focus on that. Let's go to the Lord to that end. Father, we thank you this morning for your love for us. We thank you for your word, even when it's hard to hear at times. We pray that you would give us a heart of curiosity, that you would give us a heart that longs to uh, cling to you, that longs to hear who you say you are, and help us to spot and to identify in our hearts where we might be making your kingdom and our kingdom the same thing, uh, such that we are threatened by what you value. Help us to value what you value. Help us to love what you love and help us to love Jesus more. we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.